0: Well, hey, good morning, Harvest. How we doing? Good. Three of us are awake. Let's try that again. How we doing this morning? Good? Good, good. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Titus chapter 2. We are in the second week of a three-week series that is called A Blueprint for a Healthy Church. And if you were with us last week, you will remember that um, Titus is a young pastor who is pastoring on the island of Crete in the Greek empire. And Paul had established this church. He had planted this church, but then Paul left to go uh, do more ministry and to plant more churches. And he left a young pastor named Titus to oversee this new church. And the purpose of Titus is Paul is writing Titus, this this young guy that he loves, and he's trying to give him advice to establish and to lead and run a healthy church. And last week we looked at this idea that just like uh, there's order in creation, and God establishes order in work and in government and in marriage, that God has also established a church to function in an orderly way. And, and what that means is three dudes hanging out in Starbucks reading the Bible. It's a good thing, but it's not church. That, that church has leaders and it has authority and there is structure around it. And Paul went into the qualifications of elders and how the church is supposed to bring order. Paul is trying to move things from chaos to order. And in chapter two, Paul moves from talking about how the church is supposed to function and be organized to what are the people of the church supposed to be like? He moves, all right, what what, the people who love Jesus and and call the church their home, how are they supposed to act and relate to one another and and function in the church? So this morning is gonna be really, really interesting because what Paul does is he splits the church into four quadrants. There's older men and older women, Younger men and younger women. And so just uh, to, to be clear, the, what most commentators believe that the age cut off that, that separated older from younger, what Paul was meaning was about the age of 50. All right, so another way to put it is if you're my dad's age or older, you qualify as being in the older segment of the church. And if you are younger than my dad or younger, you qualify as a younger person. But the, the cutoff is around 50. But the cool thing is um, he gives direct instruction to every quadrant, which means no matter where you are or how old you are, um, you're going to be spoken to directly. God, God has something very, very clear to say to you, and in fact, what I would like you to do just to get your hearts ready, if you would turn to a person you came with and said, this morning's message is for me. Can you say that to them? It's for you. God's word is going to speak directly into what are you called to be as not only a follower of Jesus, but a healthy member of a church, and here's kind of the big question I wanna start with that's gonna kind of set the tone for where we're going, it's this. We need to answer the question, does your life make your faith look attractive or does it make it look ugly? And how you live and how you conduct yourself and how you interact with others, does the way you live make your faith look attractive or ugly? It was about five years ago now, my family moved from one house in Spring Lake to another house, stayed in the same city, but moved homes. And it was interesting, the uh, home that we bought, we actually uh, used to be neighbors with the family that owned that home. So we kind of had a relationship with them. We knew them, we were friendly with them. And so as we were doing kind of the closing uh, documents and we were at the title company kind of uh, finalizing the sale of the home, this couple that we knew who we were buying their house, they just looked at us And they said, hey, just so you know, um, your neighbors are going to be interesting. That's all they said. You go, I I just want to warn you, it's going to be a little bit interesting. And it's like, "Ah, okay, I don't know exactly what that means, but I've been in neighborhoods before. I've understood neighborhood drama, and I've seen mean emails before. Like, I I, kind of get it, but, you know, thanks for the heads up. And uh, when we moved into our house, we had uh, two labs. We had a yellow lab and and a black lab, and uh, one was like eight, the other one was two or three, and they were good dogs. They uh, were obedient, they behaved, they, they stayed. Like when we took them out, they would stay, they wouldn't wander around. But we, off of our kitchen, had, had a deck that, that they could um, go lay out in the sun, and it was fenced in, and, and they loved being outside. And, and again, they were good dogs. They didn't bark like crazy, but occasionally if they saw someone walk down the street, or if, especially if someone was walking a dog down the street, they would let them know that they were there. They would bark a couple times and wag their tail and go on with their day. Well, about two or three weeks after moving in uh, to our house, we got a knock on our door and uh, it was animal control. And he goes, hey, I just want to let you know your neighbors have called and uh, reported that your dogs are, are um, being too loud and that there's a, a noise complaint. And I remember looking at the guy from animal control, I'm like, my dogs are right there. Like They were out on the deck up, like, upstairs and they were just looking at him, wagging his tail, not making any noise. And he's like, yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I actually waited outside your house before I knocked because I wanted to see what the complaint was. Your dogs were perfectly behaved. So I'm just going to file this, that this is a, um, you know, a, a, a unwarranted complaint. You're free to kind of keep doing whatever you want. I don't see any issues. But he goes, if they do bark, just try to bring them inside. And I'm like, oh, yeah, absolutely. We, we don't want to be an offense. And about um, three or four days later, animal control showed up again at our home. And it was the same guy. And the funny thing was at this point he was frustrated because he's like, listen, by law, if two neighbors call and complain, I have to go check it out. But I saw it was you again. I came, your dogs are being well behaved again. They are not a problem. This is unwarranted, but I have to come. And he's like, I don't know what to tell you. He goes, this is definitely a, your neighbor's problem. It's not your problem. And you know, my wife, if you know her, she's very, very sweet. She doesn't like conflict. I'm not sure why she married me, but you know, I'm thanking the Lord for that. And so she's like, just kind of like worked up about it. And so it's like, every time the dogs yawn, she's trying to bring them inside and she's trying not to be an offense. And she's, you know, worried that like, man, I just can't believe that our neighbors are frustrated with us and they haven't even talked to us about it. They just went straight to animal control, but we're trying to navigate it. And the next week comes, and I'm here, I'm at church, and someone calls the church, and Jody Flickema picks up the phone, and she's like, hey, Cal, there's someone on the line for you. And I pick it up, and it's a voice that I don't recognize. And she goes, are you Calvin Wassen? And I said, yeah. Is this your address? Is this where you live? I said, yep, that's where we live. And she's like, well, I'm one of your neighbors, and I just want to let you know that another one of your neighbors was talking to me. And she says she hates your dogs and she's going to make bread balls filled with rat poison and throw them on your deck so when your dogs eat them, they're gonna die. And I just thought you should know because I hate animal cruelty. And I'm like, okay, um, that's disconcerting. Um, can I, would you tell me who I'm talking to? Nope, I won't give you my name. I don't want any part of this, I want nothing to do with it. And then she hangs up on me. So I'm like, oh, awesome. Um, so I call Mary and I'm like, hey, Mary, I just got this weird call. This is what was said. And my wife starts crying. And here's why. She goes, Cal, she goes, not only do I have dogs that, that are out on that deck during the day, but at that point, Judah was one years old. And if you've had a one-year-old, you know that literally anything they grab goes into their mouth. And she's like, it could just as easily be Judah that eats a bread ball full of rat poison. And, and, and I might not even know it. And she's like, I don't feel safe anymore. And so I'm like, all right, let me, um, let me make a phone call. And I called a buddy of mine who was in my small group who was a cop and I'm like, help me out. This is what was said, this is what we've been dealing with. And he's like, Cal, okay, here's what you need to do. You need to call 911 just to file a report. Just get it documented so that if anything happens in the future, we've already got record that there were threats made. He goes, this is my advice, this is what you should do. So I went home, we called the police, we came, we filed a report. And, and, and the cops like, you know, thank you for doing this. It's on record, um, and, and you know we'll we'll keep an eye on it. And, and he left, and Mary and I look at each other, and we're like, all right, what are we gonna do? And in that moment of frustration and, and, and being angry about it, I was looking up, you know, expensive sound systems to put on my deck, and I'll just blare loud music, and if you want to fight, we can have a fight. You know, that's where, like, my flesh wanted to go. And, and, and Mary's like, no, that's not a good idea. Let's not do that. And she's like, she goes, Cal, I know what we need to do. And uh, she went to the store, and she got six gift baskets. And she got the kids together, and she made bran muffins. And uh, we laced those brand muffins with laxatives. And then we put... <laughs> no, no, we, did, we didn't we did do that, um, I promise you. But what, we, what she did do was she made muffins, um, you know, non-diarrhea-inducing muffins, and she put together gift baskets, and her and the kids delivered them to all of our neighbors. And there was this moment where um, we knew that our neighbors knew that I was a pastor. They knew that we were a part of a church. They called me at church to let me know what was going on. And then even though we were frustrated and we were upset, we're like, listen, our witness is on the line here. And we have a choice to strike back and to get even, or we can move forward in love. Not because it was easy or not because it's necessarily what we wanted to do, but we knew that the reputation of Jesus Christ was at stake in how we loved our neighbor's And church, here's the truth. Whether we like it or not, whether we believe it's fair or not, whether we acknowledge the reality of it or not, people are watching how we live our lives. And we live with the weight that we carry the reputation of the gospel and the reputation of Jesus Christ in how we live. And we need to wrestle with this question, do I carry this reputation well? Does the way I live make the gospel of Jesus Christ attractive or does it make it ugly? And so here's my prayer before we jump into God's word. I pray that this passage would serve as a mirror into our hearts. Like you're not going to find a passage that is more clear about what you specifically are called to do and called to live. And my hope is no matter how we come in here, no matter what's on our minds, no matter how our week's going, that we can push that to the side for a moment and just say, God, speak to my heart. Reveal what you would have for me. Would you give me the humility to embrace your instruction? And so I just ask that you would just take a moment, even in the quietness right now, and just prepare your heart to hear from the word of God. All right, Titus 2, starting at verse one, look what it says. Now he's talking to Titus first, he says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So that's the instruction for Titus that he needs to teach the word of God. Then he says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sounded faith in love and steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slave to much wine. They are to teach what is good. All right, so you have to remember that Paul is writing to Titus and Titus is on the island of Crete. And the people of Crete had this reputation for being wild. They were a party culture. In fact, if you have your Bibles open, look at Titus 1, verse 12. This is what Paul writes about the Cretans. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Okay, what Paul's saying is like, listen, they call themselves evil, lazy, and liars, and they're not wrong. And what Paul is telling Titus, is like, listen, it's going to be hard to live for Christ on this island. It's going to be hard to lead this church and to honor the Lord in the midst of a culture that is spiraling away from God. And what Paul is doing is, is he's charging the older Christians in the church to live in a way that is in stark contrast to the culture. Again, look at verse 2. Look what he says to the older men. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-control, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine." So he says the older men, rather than being lazy and evil and liars, that they're to be dignified, self-control, and that they should live in a way that people would want to model their lives after them. That that dignity and love and self-control should be the defining characteristics of their life. And it's interesting He he says that there should be sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. And another way to translate the word steadfastness is this idea of hope. That no matter what phase of life you're going through, no matter what the storms of life are, there is an immovable hope and endurance in Christ because your eyes are set on things that are eternal. And he says that the older men should be defined by faith, hope, and love. And Paul, he he partners these words together often in his letters. And these are kind of the cornerstones of what the Christian life should be defined by. That as followers of Jesus Christ, our lives are marked by faith in God, by hope that that he is returning and and that our eternity is with him and a sacrificial serving love for others. Then it's interesting, look what he says. He says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine, but they are to teach what is good. And it's weird because for the older men, he talks very, very vaguely. He's like dignity, self-control, faith, hope, and love. But for the women, he's like, don't get drunk and don't slander. Like, isn't that weird that he gets so specific there? And why does he do that? Well, if you understand the culture he's writing to, apparently in Crete, if you were an older woman, the way that you got respect and that you were looked up to is if you could hang with the men when it came to drinking and if you could talk trash. But like it was seen as a good thing. If you could get wasted and run your mouth, this is how kind of backwards or different from um, the, the word of God that this culture was. And what Paul is saying is, no, 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 that's not how you gain favor and respect. You do it through being reverent in behavior. Look at verse four. This is so important. It says, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working from home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Okay, here's what you need to see. And I wanna talk right now specifically to the older generation in our church. He says, not only are you to live this way, but you carry the responsibility to mentor and disciple the younger generation to be followers of Jesus Christ. He's saying it's not just about living those things, but if you're truly to be mature, if you're truly to be what God has called you to be, that you need to view yourself as a disciple maker and be intentionally engaging with the younger people in the church. So here's the first thing I wanna draw out from the text this morning. It's this, and it's for the older Christians. Um, maturity means impact on others. Maturity means impact on others. And it's funny, right? Because we gauge maturity in, in so many different ways. May, maybe you view maturity in Christ as simply how long have you been a believer? You now, I've been a believer for 30 years or 40 years or 50 years, and I've been around church a long time. I'm mature, I, I, I've seen it all. Now, is that a good thing? Yeah, is that the definition of maturity biblically? I don't think so. Maybe it's how much of the Bible do you know? How many verses do you have memorized? How, how, how well do you know uh, God's word? And, and the problem is, is that can't be the ultimate level of maturity. It's a good thing, but it can't be the ultimate test because Jesus called the Pharisees who had literally memorized the first entire five books of the Bible. He called them whitewashed tombs. He says, you know everything, but it's made no impact on your heart. Maybe it's how many ministries you're involved in, um, how busy you are with Christian activity. All of these things are, are fine things. But what Paul's saying is, is if your walk with Christ doesn't lead to impact on the younger generation, you're not doing what you've been called to do. You're not truly mature in Christ. And this idea of teaching the younger generation, I want you to hear this, it's not the idea that everyone's got to lead a formal Bible study or a formal class. It's more of this idea of one-on-one doing life with, giving your wisdom, loving, caring for, pouring in to the younger generation. And and I also want you to see this, Um, see that the onus is not on Titus to make this happen. He's not saying, Titus, you need to make sure that the older generation disciples the younger generation. He puts that responsibility on the older believers. He tells Titus very clearly in verse one what his job is, and that's to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he says, for the older generation, it's your responsibility to engage in these discipleship relations. So I want to make this very, very clear. It's not my job to play Christian matchmaker or to set up discipleship playdates. That responsibility is on the older generation to have the attitude, who am I pouring into? Who am I discipling? Who am I loving and serving in the younger generation? And church, look here. All of us need to be ministered to. I need to be ministered to. Our pastors need to be ministered to. Older people need to, younger people. And my prayer is, is that this church, through our services, through worship, through the teaching of God's word, through community and small group, that this would be a place where you can come and feel ministered to. But the truth is, specifically for those of you who are older, I need to ask you a couple questions. Do you view this church as something that exists for you or is it something that you are a part of and that you are praying that God would use you to bless and serve others? Well, Cal, what are you talking about specifically? I'm glad you asked, let me tell you. Um, Here's a question. When you come to church this morning, older Christians, older brothers and sisters in Christ. Is your attitude, man, I hope the music isn't too loud and I hope they play the songs that I like. Or is it, man, who is someone that I can encourage today? Who is someone younger that's in a busy, crazy season of life that I can bless and encourage and be a light to and and, and serve this morning? What was your attitude? Uh, Is your attitude, I hope my favorite pastor is preaching at my campus this morning. I hope, insert this person's name here. I hope I get to hear them because man, they're the one that really blesses me. Or is it, um, man, I really want to find someone that I can pray for. And, and I really wanna be building relationships with people in the church so I can know them and pray for them and be an encouragement. Here's one. Um, man, I hope my seat isn't taken in the sanctuary, Right? Heaven forbid, like when we had to you know, um, limit our uh, uh, attendance capacity and we roped off the wrong row, it's like, no, I'm in row three. You can't rope off row three. Like I'm going to die if I can't sit in my exact spot. <laughs> or are you like, you know what? I go to church with a lot of people that I don't know and won't have close relationship and I can't minister to everyone, but I can pray for everyone. So I'm gonna come with a heart of prayer, praying that God would move in these services, that that those who need to be encouraged would be encouraged. I am going to be on my knees praying for the people that I go to church with. Here's one, is your attitude. Man, I've served my time raising young kids. I'm done with that. I'm tired of that nonsense. It's hard and it's exhausting. And I've served my time and that's now on my kids to do. And so I'm not going to engage in any way with the children of our church. In fact, I hope the young families, they get their kids in order so they're not running around driving me crazy at church. Or is it, man, I remember how exhausting and busy that season of life is. And what better way than to be a blessing to, to the youngest generation of our church, than to say, you know what? I can take an hour and a half and two times every six week serve in children's ministry and love on the youngest generation and disciple them and care for them. And in the same moment, I'm also being a blessing to their parents who have to live with these kids. And I get, they're allowed to now sit in a service and worship the Lord and, and hear from God's word without distraction because I am loving on their children. You know, we're not alone in this, but I would say consistent struggle for all 10 years of our church's ministry is getting enough volunteers to serve in children's ministry. And I know that this is a nationwide problem. And part of it's a good problem because we have a lot of young people in our church and a lot of young kids. And there is a ton of kids to love and serve and care for. And that's an awesome thing, amen? Okay, but here's the other thing I know. I know that I'm talking to enough people even right now That if the older generation had a heart to love and serve and be a blessing to the younger generation we would have so many volunteers we wouldn't know what to do with and now there are some in our church who are older and serve in children's ministry and do this and model this well unfortunately it's the exception it's not the rule and what I would lovingly want to tell you is, is if you have the mentality, I've done this already, I've served my time, now it's about doing what I want to do. It's in a very American mindset. It's just not loving. And church, here's what I want you to hear. This idea of pressing into the next generation is some of the sweetest ministry that there is. Um, my father in law, Randy, he's an elder at our church. And I remember a couple of years ago talking with him, and he um, knew a guy from our church who was younger. He was about my age. And um, they just started getting together once a month for breakfast. And Randy instigated the relationship and they would go out for breakfast and they would talk about life. They would talk about marriage. They would talk about raising kids. They would talk about how do you navigate difficult family situations. And Randy was like, man, it's some of the best parts of my month, like I am getting as much as I'm giving in and the Lord's showing up and I'm building this awesome relationship with this young guy. Like There's so much blessing there. But if you're going to get there, you have to have your eyes off of yourself. And you've got to think of church, not not what does it exist for me or how does it exist for me? But am I a part of this? Am I a disciple maker? This series is called A Blueprint for a Healthy Church. And church, I want you to hear this. We will only be truly healthy if the older Christians take ownership and responsibility to love, build into and disciple the next generation and see it as something that they are called to. So let me press in again. Older Christians, who are you discipling? Who are you having an impact on? Who are you engaging with? Or maybe let me ask you this question. Does your life resemble something that others would wanna emulate? Are you living in a way where if others did follow you and you did disciple them, that it would lead to lives that love the Lord? All right, so I'm gonna let the older Christians out of the fire right now, and I'm gonna turn my aim to the younger ones. You guys cool with that? Last night when I said that, an older man yelled, amen, and that was nice. So I know you guys are probably feeling it, but look again at verse four. It says, so train the young women to love their husbands and children and to be self-controlled, pure, working from home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So Paul goes into this list of what younger women are to be called to, and actually Titus 2 verses 4 and 5 has been the center of a lot of controversy in the American church in the last 20 or 30 years, specifically this phrase, teaching them to work from home. And there's been this debate. Does this mean that if you are a follower of Christ and if you're a woman, that you are not to work in the marketplace and you're not to have a job? Is this passage limiting the, the woman to just being a stay-at-home mom? Is Paul saying it's wrong for women to work? That, that's what we need to wrestle with. Well, here's a couple things about this passage that you need to understand. Here's the first. Paul is assuming that the people he is writing to are married. Okay, so he is not... Uh, talking to single women at all. He he is assuming that the the people reading this were young women who were married. So I want to clear that up. And here's the other thing you need to see. And I want to show you this from the text. What Paul is stressing here is character and conduct, not vocation. Look at the list for the young women. He says, young women are to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled. That's a character quality. To be pure, that's a character quality. Working at home, to be kind, a character quality. Submissive, a character quality. And I think the right way to exegete this text is saying, he's saying this is what the the heart of the woman should be. This is what their character should be. He's not talking specific about what job they can or cannot have. And here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, if you are a woman and you have chosen to get married and to have kids, that they need to be your first priority and that there should be nothing that, that stands in the way of you being faithful to what God's called you to. He's not saying they can't work, but he says there should be nothing, work, uh, friendships, family, relationships, anything that, get, that would distract you from what God has called you to do. When he says working at home, he's saying, be a hard work worker, have a good work ethic, don't be lazy. He's saying your first priority outside of your relationship with God is your family. And it's not that you can't work, but if that is taking away from your first priority, then you need to make an adjustment. And by the way, this is the same exact thing we tell men. I stand with men or I sit with men in my office all the time. And I say, listen, someday you're gonna stand before the Lord and give an account. And after they, he talks to you about, did you follow Jesus or not? The next thing he's gonna say is, is, is were you faithful with what I've entrusted you with? And guess what's first on that list? It's gonna be your wife and it's gonna be your kids. It's not gonna be your job. It's not going to be your church. It's not gonna be your friendships. So if work or if anything else is causing you not to love your family well and it's making it impossible, you need to look at making changes. Look at verse six. I love this. It's so funny. Then he goes, just likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Like, isn't that funny that like the older men have like six things that they need to do? The, the older women have like seven, the younger women have five or six. And then when he comes to the young dudes, he's like, just do this one thing, live with self-control. Like if you can be self-control, 99.9% of your problems are going to be taken care of. Like just focus on this one thing. So here's what I would say, and I'm going to say this because he says this to both the young women and men. The thing I wanna pull out is um, for you younger believers, are you living with self-control? And here's what amazes me, like 2000 years later, Paul still nails it, doesn't he? Like I've been thinking this week, like what would be if I could just give one piece of advice to younger followers of Jesus Christ, what would I give them? I've been trying to come up with an answer that's better than self-control, I can't figure it out. Like, Like it's the perfect advice The number one issue that trips up younger people, again, 50 and under, so often is young people, uh, they live with a lack of self-control or they make decisions not thinking about the consequences that their decisions will have. So the question is, is, all right, Cal, what are you talking about specifically when you mean self-control? Well, I've come up with a working definition. Here it is. Self-control is the discipline to live for something that is greater than the moment. It's the discipline to live for something that is greater than the moment. Paul is pleading with the young people in the church to have a vision for their life that is greater than simply what brings satisfaction or pleasure in the moment. He's saying, have your eyes on something that is greater than just how you feel and what you want and yourself. And I think there are many different areas where we need to apply this idea of self-control. So these aren't um, in your notes, but if you're a younger person and you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to write these down. Here are different areas we are called to self-control. The first one and one that is so huge is in the area of sex. Do we exhibit self-control in our sexuality? Do we have a vision for our sexuality that is bigger than momentary pleasure or temptation? Right? I I think there is no better example of someone just living for the moment when they give into the temptation of pornography. Right? They're not thinking about the hooks of addiction. They're not thinking about the shame and hate and isolation and how this is cancer to their soul when they choose to look at porn, all they're thinking about is, what do I want in the moment? What is going to bring satisfaction? It's just about them in that moment right now, right? Nobody is thinking about the devastation it's going to do to their children's souls when they cheat on their spouse and how for generations, the pain and scarring of that sin is going to have an effect on the people they love most. It's what do I want? What do I deserve? What will bring me much, most joy? What, what, what can I do in the moment? Right When a young couple who is um, not honoring the Lord with their sexuality before they're married, they're not thinking about the moment you know, 20 years down the road when they have 13, 14-year-olds and they're talking about purity and what the Lord would have for them and they feel like hypocrites because they themselves fell short. Do you have a vision for your sexuality that's greater than in the moment? Do you want to honor the Lord in these things? Here's one, we're called to honor the Lord and have self-control with our time, right? And here's the way I wanna ask this. Are you giving your best energy to the right things? Like Here's what I mean. We've all been called to things. We've been called to work. We've been called to family. We've been called to church. We've been called to different things by God. So very, very practically, if you're here right now and you're like, man, I'm so tired, I can barely keep my eyes open because I was up till 4 a.m. watching Netflix last night. That's a you self-control problem. It's not a Cal being boring problem, I promise. Like, did you have the self-control to say, I'm going to get a good night's sleep and I'm going to be rested and I'm going to give myself to the things that the Lord has called me to, or am I just going to do what I want in the moment and not have a vision for something greater than the moment? Man, I'm not passing any of my classes in school, but I've got a really good rank in call of duty, right? That's a lack of self-control. It's not living for things outside of just the moment. Here's one that's so important. Uh, Do you have self-control when it comes to your finances, to money? You know, it's interesting. um, Any metric that that kind of looks at the church as a whole nationwide, um, what they do is is they can look at age demographics uh, of who gives what percent when it comes to tithing or, or giving to the church. And here's what they find, that almost all of the tithing and giving to the church comes from the older generation that younger people don't tithe and they don't give anything to the church. And here's why, because they lack self-control. They're living for the moment, they're building their own kingdom, right? They have refused to look at what God has given them through a vertical mindset that everything they've received has been given from the Lord. It's not their own, it's theirs to steward. They're gonna give an account for how they lived with those things and that God promises, I will be with you and I'll be for you and you will receive a a multiplier of blessing if you set your finances in a way that would honor me and you give back to me first and you're generous with others. But it's no, I want this, I want to fake it till I make it. And when I get to some place down the road, then I can think about being generous. It's it's living for the moment. Do you have a budget? Do you live within your means or are you spending money you don't have on things you don't need, setting yourself up for pain down the road? Do you exhibit self-control? Here's one. Um, Do you exhibit self-control in the area of alcohol? Um, I can't in good conscience say as a teacher of God's word that alcohol is a sin. God's word does not say that. Uh, Jesus drank alcohol. Alcohol um, can be a good thing and a gift from the Lord. But here's the truth. It's also a very, very dangerous thing. So here's the question. If you are here and you drink, do you have right accountability? Do you have right limits and fences in place? Or are you just like, man, I'm going to have fun and I'm going to go hard in the paint and we'll figure out tomorrow, tomorrow. Like, man, I've sat with so many people in my office in tears who are like, man, I just drank too much. And I said something I was never was going to say. I did something that I would never do, but I was under the influence of alcohol and it has blown up my life. Self-control, are you living for the moment or do you have a vision for something greater? Here's one, do you exhibit self-control with your words? Right, our words are a big one, isn't it? When you get angry, do you just say whatever you wanna say? Whatever is the meanest, most cutting, most hurtful, do you say it in the moment because it feels good? Or is your tongue tamed? And you say, I'm not gonna blow up relationships right now because I'm hurt. I'm not going to make that an excuse to hurt other people. Here's one. Are you willing to say anything to get a laugh? Are you willing to go to the lowest common denominator just so that you can be liked by others and that people will think you're funny and that people will want to be around you? Or, or, Or do you have a standard for what will or won't come out of your mouth? Here's one, are you trustworthy? Can people tell you things, or, or, or are you, do you have a reputation that you love the drama, you love the feeling of being in the commotion, so you're gonna tell everyone what's going on with everyone because you just love the attention? Here's a new one that I think is new within the last 15 years that we have to navigate well. Uh, do we exhibit self-control in social media? In what we post, in the pictures, that we post, are we building one another up or are we just seeking attention for ourselves? Like, can I give you a really practical piece of advice? If you are frustrated, if you're angry or if you've had a bad day, just don't write anything on Facebook. Like do us all a favor, it's not helping anything. Um, I have seen so many relationships over the past year needlessly blow up because people just wrote things that were unkind. And there was a debate and the comment section got crazy. And yeah, there was a lot of drama, but it was a lot of pain and it didn't honor the Lord. If you've got conflict with someone, call them, take them out to coffee, resolve it in a way that would honor the Lord. Don't fire bullets over social media. Look what he says in verse seven. Now he's talking to Titus again. He says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So Paul now encourages Titus as the pastor, hey, you've got to live this out. You've got to have dignity. You've got to make sure that you are living what you preach because there's opponents out there who are looking to put to shame Christianity. And this is another reminder, people are watching. And in how we live, we can either be putting others to shame who would want to fight against our message, or we can be putting the gospel to shame in how we live. There's a lot on the line. All right, young believers, so here's the question. How do we exercise the muscle of self-control in our lives? Like if you're here and you're like, man, this is something I struggle with and I do wanna grow in the area of self-control, how do I do it? Well, here's the thing. I don't have a silver bullet that's like, you know, eat this food and all of a sudden you'll have self-control. I wish it was that simple. It's not. I can just share with you what's best for my heart when I am growing in these things. And here's what I would say. Um. This is what God has done in my heart. And when I'm growing in self-control, this is what I do. I look for daily opportunities to deny myself of something I would naturally do for the purpose of serving someone else. So every day I'm looking for opportunities, not to do what I have to do, but but to do something that I wouldn't naturally do and I don't have to do to be a blessing and to love and serve someone else. So maybe it's as simple as this. I'll be driving home from work and I'll just pray, hey God, give me an opportunity to serve my wife the second I get home. And so then I go home and guess what I do? I go and I look, hey, is the kitchen clean or is it dirty? And if it's dirty, I put away all the dishes and I run the dishwasher or I put things away. And it's just, man, I just want to love and serve my wife. Not because I have to, I wasn't required to do it, but I'm trying to get my eyes off of myself and onto being a blessing to others. Um, here's a really, really simple one that I love. Um, when you swing by Starbucks in the morning before work, Um, instead of getting a coffee just for you, get a four pack of coffees and bring them in for your coworkers and just say, hey, I've got some extra coffee. Who would be blessed by a cup of coffee? It's just thinking of others and loving and serving others, not just yourself. Maybe it's just, hey, um, today at the office, I'm just going to engage in a meaningful conversation with someone. I'm gonna ask about their family. I'm gonna ask how I can be praying for them. I'm going to see how they're doing. I'm just going to engage in more than just the workplace dynamic." And here's why this is so important. What you're doing is is you're practicing getting your eyes off of yourself and that will teach you to live for something greater than the moment. And and here's what I would say. If you can look back on your day or on your week and you're like, wow, outside of the things I had to do, everything that I did was just about me and just what I wanted wanted to do, you're setting yourself up to fail in the area of self-control. This is a muscle that we have to exercise. So again, young people, give me your eyes for a second please don't believe the lie that you can both have Jesus as Lord and Savior and that you get to have complete autonomy and authority over your own life. Like you don't get to come here and worship Jesus on the weekends and functionally be the Lord over your own life during the week. Those two things are mutually exclusive. Paul is saying, we carry the weight that we represent the gospel of Jesus Christ and how we live. And we are to live in a way that would be marked by self-control. All right, look at verse nine. He says, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they, in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our savior. So now Paul moves this issue to, to bond slaves and masters, and I don't have time to get into all of it, but here's what you need to understand. Slavery in uh, the Greek empire was very different than slavery in America. You guys know that, right? Like slavery in America was racially motivated. It, it was uh, oppressive. We, we stole people from other countries. It was all in all wicked and wrong in so many ways that I shouldn't have to explain. Like, like we understand this. What, what I would say, though, is slavery in the Greek empire was very, very different. It wasn't based on race. Um, it wasn't... Um, imposed on people like we imposed slavery on others. And it wasn't even always by social class or status. And in many ways, what most commentators do is they say that slavery in the Greek empire, what was the closest thing would be a boss and worker relationship. So most commentators would compare it to the marketplace. And what Paul is saying is in regards to the marketplace that we are called to work with integrity. And what he's saying is that, listen, that we are to have good attitudes. We don't steal, we work hard, and we honor those who God has put in authority over us. And in that day, what was common was oftentimes the slaves, they would manage their master's accounts. So they would do the accounting or they would go to the marketplace and they would buy and sell goods. And it was common practice for the slaves just to pocket some money for themselves, So they would be entrusted with their master's stuff. They would give the master 90% of what they made, but 10% was going in their own pockets. And that was standard procedure. And what Paul is saying is, is not us. He says that when you work, you're going to work in a way or you're gonna conduct yourself in a way that should make you stick out amongst your coworkers that you're going to have a reputation of being clean and being honest and working with integrity. And then look what he says, this is so important. So that in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God, our savior. Do you see that? It goes right back to the big question. Does your life make your faith look attractive or ugly? He's saying that in how we work in our attitude and in our interaction with one another, that we have the ability to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ like fine jewelry. That we get to make it look shiny and pretty and nice and attractive to others, but that's only going to happen when we live in a way that's different from the culture that we live in. You no, know, really, um cool example of this is um, about 15 years ago when I was a student at Moody Bible Institute. Uh, Moody is a small school. It's about 2,000 kids, and it's right in downtown Chicago, third biggest city in the country. And what happens is, is all the kids at Moody, they get jobs in the city to pay for school. So they worked at restaurants or coffee shops or hotels, but, but everyone works in the city. And the interesting thing was when I was at Moody, and I don't know if this is still the same way, if uh, Workplaces, if restaurants, if hotels, uh, if they found out that you went to Moody Bible Institute, you had an inside track to the job. It, it, people wanted to hire Moody students. You know why? Because the school had been there for a hundred years. And over that time, they developed a reputation that Moody students, you can trust them that they show up, that they work hard, that they're honest, that they're respectful, that they have a good attitude. And it was this really cool thing that this small Christian school is having an impact in a massive city, that, that the reputation of the gospel is being adorned because when the kids go out into the workplace, that they work with integrity. And the cool thing was, is my dad at that time, he was doing a uh, real estate development in Chicago. And so he would go to like the uh, city assessor's office and his interns would be Moody students because he trusted them and he knew they worked hard and he wanted moody students in his office. It was just a cool example of this playing out in a real way. All right, look at verse 11 as we close. Look at how Paul closes this, it's really interesting. He says, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people Here's the last thing we see from the text is that the fuel for our living is the gospel. The fuel for our living is the gospel. And what Paul does is he does something really interesting. But in these verses, he shares for us three things. He shares for us, shares for us the catalyst for our transformation, the power behind our transformation, and the motivation to hang in there. And under the catalyst for our transformation, we see it right away. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Well, what's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. He he says, listen, the reason we live this way is because we have relationship with Jesus Christ. Because our identity is that we are known, loved, and saved by the savior of the universe. That just like everyone else in culture, left to our own, we would gladly live for ourselves, go our own way, live for our own glory, live for the moment, but we're not like everyone else because we have Jesus. And Jesus opened our eyes to our sin. He opened our eyes to the creator. He's given us a new heart. He's given us a new identity that we are clean, that we are forgiven. And even in our past failures, we have received forgiveness and grace. So we're not defined by those things that we have been given Jesus. And then for the power behind this life or our transformation, look what he says in verse 12 training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. And what he's saying is, is listen, not only have we been saved by Jesus, but Jesus taught us how to live, that we have God's word, that we can see what Jesus taught and how he lived. But not only that, that God has given us his spirit to reside in us. So that we have the power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead resides in our hearts for us to have victory and new life over our sin. And listen, there's someone in here today who just needs to hear this. It is possible to live with self-control. You can do it. It's possible. It is not an impossible task, but between God's word and his spirit and this community of faith, you've been given everything you need to have victory over sin. God has not abandoned you. He is near to you. He is with you. And he wants to encourage and strengthen you to live this life. And then the third thing we see is the motivation to hang in there. Look at verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? And I think of the definition of self-control, the the discipline to live for something greater than the moment. The reason we live with that is because we were created for something that's greater than this moment. But he says, we have this hope that one day Jesus is returning and there will be no more pain. There will be, be no more suffering or frustration that he will make everything right. And we will be united with God and one another for eternity. So in this present moment, in the frustrations and pain and temptation and difficulties of life, we don't yield, we don't give in to the moment, but our eyes are set on Jesus Christ, that he is returning and our future is with him and that's real and it's never changing. So again, Paul likes to use phrases like our life is a mist and this is a light and momentary affliction that will pass. Whatever you're going through, If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your future is bright. So we need to live as people whose eyes are on that and are not thrown by the waves of temptation or the circumstances of life. So here's what I'd ask you to do. If you could just bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. I wanna close this way. I wanna close a little bit differently. I said at the beginning of this message, I'm hoping that God would use his word today as a mirror for our hearts. So I just want you to take a moment and kind of wrestle with whatever age quadrant you fall into, older men or older women. Can I ask you a question? Does your life line up with God's word in this? Do you live with self-control? Do you live with reverence? Do you live with dignity? Um, Who are you discipling? What's your attitude towards the people in this room? Is it one of indifference? Is it one of, man, I'm glad I got a full room of people to go to church with, or is it, man, I want to love and serve and build in to the next generation of my family, God's family? Younger Christians, is your life marked by self-control or is there sin that we've got to deal with right now? Is there sin that we need to confess? Are there things we need to be honest about in small group? Do we need to stop living a lie and actually take the things that are tripping us up day in and day out seriously, drag those things from the darkness into the light so that the spirit of God might destroy those things. Dearly Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. God, I'm just so thankful um, that your word is so clear and practical And God, you tell us what we are called to. You give us this warning that we represent and adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's not just our reputation on the line, but it's your reputation. And God, I just pray that we would take that seriously. God, I'm thankful for forgiveness for our failures that we can know that every sin we've ever committed, past, present, and future has been completely forgiven and covered by you. So we're not defined by those things, but that we can actually turn and live in a way that would represent you well. I'm praying that your spirit would move and soften and humble. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.